Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say that we have my old friend Russ Martin on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows and Marriage Politics in Early Modern Russia. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Russ. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Today we're talking with Russ Martin about his terrific book, A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows and Marriage Politics in Early Modern Russia. This is a special treat for me because I have known Russ and been Russ's colleagues for for many, many years now. And I know him not only to be a terrific person, but also to be a terrific scholar and, moreover, uh, he has written a book on an extraordinarily important topic, if you are interested in Russian history, which, as the listeners to this podcast will know, I am. So uh, I highly recommend that you pick this book up and look at it and read it, because it is the result I happen to know of many, many years of incredible research. It's also very nicely written. It has beautiful plates. It has wonderful schema in the back of it. Thank you to... Northern Illinois University Press for publishing it. I think they did a great service. So uh, again, I'm I'm really very pleased to be talking with uh, my old friend Russ today. Uh, Thank Russ- you, Marshall, for that introduction. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, you you read in the script. I handed you very well. Yeah, that's right. The check is in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> so so Russ, can you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Gosh. Um, I think perhaps. Uh, the most important single biographical fact of of me is that I grew up on an island in the middle of the Ohio River, uh, literally. Um, there's an island called Neville Island just west of Pittsburgh, and three-quarters of it are industrial with uh, all sorts of companies and literally factories and mills. My father worked in one of them. And um, one-third of the island um, is residential, and I grew up on it. It has three bridges that you get onto it and off of it from, uh, over. And um, it was the – it's formative for me to, to think about that island because in many ways, it, it, you know, it, it it made me who I was. I can't think of my childhood without – thinking of the, the river and playing around it and uh, in the winter walking over it. But also it was the place I sort of escaped from, and I uh, think of it in those terms as well. You know, the island was, uh, you know, in some ways it's much better now, but back then it was a little bit of a depressing place. It was an extremely uh, working-class place, nothing wrong with that, but I was very much in my family and in my, I guess, my community and my high school, sort of the apple that... Uh, fell and rolled very far from the tree. and um, But I still have a certain affection for the place. It's, um, you know, it, it uh, it's the, the most important thing that I can say about myself when I think about uh, becoming who I am now until I went to college. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, college was that sort of eye-opening moment. I went to the University of Pittsburgh and I uh, worked with two professors there. Actually, I should say, I, my first year in college, I was a music major. I studied uh, percussion for a year at Duquesne University, also in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. in their jazz conservatory. And then, you know, I was standing in line uh, for registration for my classes for the sophomore year. And I was standing around talking with other friends who had played gigs. I had played gigs over the summer. And I felt such a sense of disconnect with everything going on that I knew I just didn't want to do music anymore, even though I'd played since I was seven. And I and I got up and I uh, I didn't register that, that day. And I, I wound up a week later registering at the University of Pittsburgh and uh, studying history. It was kind of a dramatic moment in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And at the University of Pittsburgh, I worked with two people, Bill Chase and Arisa Karapinka. Uh, Arisa Karapinka is, is now retired, a dear friend of mine. Uh, I published a um, Feshrift in her honor a couple of years back, and when I pre- when I presented it to a, a press, uh, they uh, said, "Who's Arisa Karapinka?" <laughs> <laughs> and because he didn't publish. Uh, pretty much anything. I mean, a couple book reviews, literally. But she was a fabulous, fabulous lecturer, and her students loved her and adored her and learned from her. And so I used the Festrift as a kind of uh, a vehicle to talk about the role of teaching, uh, undergraduate teaching, and how inspiring and important that that neglected part of our jobs uh, is. And uh, and so I have really fond memories of her and of. Um, of other professors there. Um, and it changed me. Going to the University of Pittsburgh changed me. It's a great place. It's a great university. I still have fun feelings for it. And I remember distinctly sitting in my first Russian history course and the professor, Bill Chase, throwing up on these uh, slides you know, on, on the screen images of you know, Nicholas II, Alexander II, palaces and churches in St. Petersburg and Moscow. You know, I had looked at those images when I was a kid in my bedroom, 14 years old, 15 years old. And you know, you, you look at that and you think, you know, nobody nobody else does this. I'm, I'm really kind of weird, you know, doing this in my bedroom. And, uh, and there I was in the classroom looking at these same images with a professor of history standing in front of me, taking it seriously. This is something people do. And that was a very validating moment in my life. And I decided that this was really kind of what I wanted to do. And then I went on to Harvard and got wait, my wait, 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 oh, wait, 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 okay. wait, wait. Now, not every kid has pictures of Nicholas II on his wall, especially drummers <laughs> and jazz bands. Can you explain that, please? <laughs> well, they were, in, they were in books. I guess I had a couple pictures on the wall. But uh, my mom, is, is, so you're, you're asking a good question because it is a little deeper than all that, isn't it? Um, my mom was uh, from an immigrant family, Russian, and uh, was raised uh, Orthodox raised, um, you know, in the choir of a church, frankly. She was uh, a choir director. Mm -hmm. And so the culture and the language was always something really very immediate for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though I had a brief time of flirtation with doing early modern French history... um, Who doesn't? (laughs) Yeah, everybody does. That's right. It's so cool. But uh, I I came back to to Russian because of the the language, because of the culture. kind of had a head start with it, Uh Um, and that's thanks to my mom. You know, I have two older brothers, and they're they're, they're, the older, the the middle brother, the one that's most closest to me in age, is is 10 years older than me. And when my mother and father were raising them, they... um, my mother would use Russian all the time in the in the, in the house, but um, when I came along, my father kind of had it and <laughs> sort of said, you know, put a prohibition on speaking Russian. So I, I grew up with a lot of church Russian and spoken at church, but uh, around the house, you know, I, I didn't know until college what the word for a spoon or a fork was because mm-hmm. we just didn't know it. I knew what redemption was, but I didn't know what the word for spoon was. <laughs> well, that's that's appropriate, I think. Yeah. So then there was Harvard, and Harvard was, of course, this incredible intellectual feast. It was. I worked with Ned Keenan, who was just magical. He's so inspiring, and uh, he's read so much. Every time, every conversation was with him was, uh, you know, another dissertation, possible dissertation topic. Mm-hmm. It was a really great formulation formation for me and for for other people who went there. I um, then I got this job at Westminster College in rural Western Pennsylvania, a really locally very good, respected um, uh, liberal arts college that has great students, and they uh, for some reason tenured me, and <laughs> and I'm here now, and it's great. I, I I'm looking out my window and looking at a beautiful countryside and. Um, it's 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 a good um, capstone to the story. That's terrific. Well, I have very fond memories at our time there in in, in Cambridge. Uh, really fond memories and fond memories of Ned. Um, so I'm glad to hear you mention him. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book. How how did you come to write it? Why why this particular topic? Well, you know, when I was at Harvard, I wrote uh, a dissertation similar to this book um, on marriage politics and sort of the wedding ritual itself, but the underlying politics. 
and um, and I, I published it in a variety of ways, but never as a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I've, I didn't, um, I didn't, I guess I just didn't want to. Um, and then I was having a coffee with um, a, a colleague of ours named, of ours named uh, Don Nostrowski. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, you know, said, you know, you've, you've written so much around this, but you've never actually put, you know, the arrow in the in the bullseye, why don't you just write a book about pride shows? And then frankly, that afternoon, I, I spent the afternoon thinking about it. And by the, by that evening, I was, I was doing that. And, and the book that actually, you know, we're talking about today is, you know, um, very different it's a, from, from the dissertation. And some of the arguments are completely, completely opposite of what I made earlier on. Um, but it's, it's from basically the idea, the, the genesis of the book is um, it's the, the thing we historians love to do, which is you know you read all these other hist- histories, the works of other historians, and they say something in passing, and you want to say, well, wait a minute, wait, can you can you give me a paragraph or a chapter on that, because that seems intriguing, and they don't, they move on because that's not what they're what they're writing about, and you encounter that four or five times, and you realize that everyone notices thing, but no one's actually stopped and and, and done a kind of discrete analysis of it. No one's told the story of this passing uh, feature of the culture. Everyone seems to know it's there. The sources are there. They've been read. They've been bumped into. They've been even sometimes published. But no one has has uh, stopped to think about it in, in a kind of, sort of deliberative way. And that's what the Bride Show was for me. It was this really interesting, small but, uh, but longitudinally sort of present. Uh, throughout these centuries, topic that no one has studied. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, bride shows, I think most of our listeners will probably associate bride shows of the kind we're talking about with um, operas and fairy tales, right? Because <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> where they exist. Right. Cinderella, right. Yeah, the right. king picks a bride among you know, all of his uh, subjects. Um, of course, that that is just a fairy tale. Can you talk a little bit about um, the origins of bride shows as they relate to uh, to old Russia. How, how did the Russians get the idea to do this, and when did they get the idea? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's actually a key question addressed in the book. Um, the first thing I would say is that um, bride shows are not just a Russian feature. They are a Eurasian feature, and probably broader than that. They probably are found... In sub-Saharan Africa, they're probably found in the Arabic world, um, many spaces, not just the Slavic space, seem to, at one point or another, uh, not everywhere, not always, but you can find the bride show being developed here and there. So you find bride shows in ancient China, in early modern China. You find bride shows even in the medieval West, Carolingian Empire. You find uh, bride shows in ancient Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, um, and you find them in Muscovy. There are some places where historians have said they you can find them. For example, in the Ottoman Empire, or elsewhere, and uh, I, they're wrong about that. They're 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 not really bride shows. Uh, there's a, a some different. Uh, set of rituals involved that may seem outwardly like a bride show, but they're really not. But there's, we know enough to know that bride shows are not exactly ubiquitous, but they're, they're spread far and wide. We can find them in various places. And actually, what I'm hoping to do down the road is to pull together a kind of collected volume on the various people who have studied this custom in different environments and have a kind of comparative uh, sort of uh, volume for, for, for the bride show. But the Muscovites seem to have gotten the bride show directly from their source for many of their high political culture and religious culture uh, sort of accoutrements, cultural accoutrements, and that's Byzantium. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Byzantines clearly had bride shows. Uh, I I say clearly because I'm convinced that they did, although among Byzantine historians there is uh, some debate about that fact. Um, but I, I tend to agree with the American historians and sort of not the Germans, not for that reason, but uh, the Americans <laughs> who seem to say that there are, were bride shows between 
uh, the 8th and 9th centuries. Um, they were bride chosen Byzantium. Now, that's a long time from when they appear in Muscovy. They appear in Muscovy only at the turn of the 16th century. So they die out in the 9th century in Byzantium. They appear in Muscovy at the turn of the 16th century. Now, how does that work? How does something leap over that much space, geographical space, and also over that many centuries? And my answer to that is <clears throat> Byzantium falls in 1453 to the, to the Ottoman Turks, as we all know. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, uh, Greeks go looking for a home outside of the Ottoman Empire. Some stay, but many leave, and then you go to Rome, Eventually, some wind up in Muscovy, and I believe they bring with them uh, this uh, memory of the bride show, which by then had become a kind of uh, story motif in Byzantine literature. In the same way that we know the expression once upon a time is a good way to start a folksy tale or something you tell your kid at nighttime, that expression once upon a time. Mm-hmm. So to the bride show is kind of a embedded feature of popular culture and literary culture in the Byzantine Greek speaking world. And that is something people carry with them in the same way that we all carry once upon a time with us. We don't have to necessarily read that. We actually may never have read that, but we still know it. We've encountered it. Mm-hmm. I think it's how the bride show worked uh, as a, as a story motif that gets carried uh, with these Greeks as they, as they escape uh, you know, the Turkish army. Mm-hmm. And they wind up in Muscovy. And the Muscovites are looking around. And frankly, at that point, as we know for, for in other contexts, the Muscovites are plagiarizing the Byzantines left and right. They're adopting the double-headed eagle, uh, probably from the Germans as much as from the Byzantines. They're uh, adopting lots of uh, court ritual, titles, um, and I think also the bride show. Mm-hmm. And these things are suggested to the Muscovites by itinerant Greeks that wind up in Muscovy willy-nilly. They're there. They, um, they have skills that the Muscovites need. They get hired in the court. And they begin talking. And it's, but, but in order for this to work, the Muscovites have to need it in the first place. And uh, that's the, sort of the interesting thing is that it's a, it's a perfect timing uh, opportunity for the bride show. It comes to Muscovy as this kind of background noise, a cultural uh, sort of memory of these itinerant Greeks. But the Muscovites, precisely at that moment, are are dealing with a problem. The problem is one born of success. Moscow has, by the turn of the 16th century, uh, taken over northeastern Rus from nearly everyone else. And that's a good thing for the Muscovites, they probably think. Mm-hmm. But it's a bad thing for their dynasty because their dynasty typically married the daughters of all the other principalities, which now have been absorbed. Now, these former princes or their sons and grandsons are now servitors in Moscow. They've sort of changed jobs. They've been demoted. Mm-hmm. And so marrying their daughters is a whole completely kettle of fish now because you're now marrying the daughter of one of your um, of one of your um, servants. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, becomes very complicated because you have other servants who have daughters or maybe who don't and might resent that. So um, the, the, the disappearance of the pull of other uh, early Russian uh, candidates uh, means that the Muscovites are looking around for other, uh, for other pulls, uh, or other sort of sources for women, for their, for their dynasts. Uh, they could, of course, marry abroad, and they do try that. But there you have the problem of religion. Um, the Russians are Orthodox, and very few people who aren't Orthodox want to convert to it, even if it means wearing a nice crown and living in the, in the, the Kremlin in Moscow. Uh, so religion becomes an obstacle, too, uh, to interdynastic marriage. So the Muscovites basically are, are in a position of having to... Um, figure out how they're going to find a bride for the czar that will not be a domestic woman uh, who is too high-ranking, like a boyar's daughter or a prince's daughter, and not a foreigner who won't be orthodox. And their solution to this is suggested to them, and we actually have a foreigner's account, one I know that you happen to know really well, um, Sigmund, uh, Sigmund Herberstein's uh, uh, travel log. Um, that says that a Greek, an itinerant Greek named Yuri Terkhaniotov, 
who was the treasurer for the, for the Grand Prince, the ruler of Muscovy, simply whispered into his ear, you should do this. <laughs> yeah. Herberstein says, this is the guy who said it. And it makes perfect sense. Whether Herberstein is right or not, it makes perfect, perfect sense that it should uh, be borrowed. Because frankly, this is a time when the Muscovites are borrowing all, all sorts of uh, Byzantine rituals, as they said. Bradshaw is really one of them. Um, so it's a, it's a question of the Muscovites being ready for an idea that happens to plop on their laps just at that time. Mm-hmm. So how do they, I want to use the word reconstruct, but how do they reinvent or invent the bride show using whatever they know about it, which I have to imagine really wasn't a whole lot? Yeah, it's a really great question. I don't think Tsakhaniyoto knew very much about it either. Uh, what he knew probably was only from literary stories and uh, saints' lives, that sort of thing. So he probably didn't really know. He, he couldn't possibly have witnessed any. It was, it was centuries old. And by that time, it had been century, for centuries defunct. Mm-hmm. So he, he probably knew very little about it, too. The fact of the matter is, is that, there, as you know, as well as I do, any historian knows, is there really isn't ever any turning back the clock. It's always a recreation, which is something new and innovative. The Muscovites take the bride show... And it's a point that I try to emphasize in the book is that what the Bradshaw was in 1505 when they first adopt it to what it was in 1689 when they drop it, for, you know, do it for the last time and it, and it ends, uh, is, is a different thing. It evolves over time. They figure out how best to use it in their own context. So, for example, the, the Byzantines would use the Bradshaw only for first marriages not for subsequent marriages. And many rulers, Muscovite rulers, will have more than one wife, not ahead of time, of course, but when they remarry, uh, Muscovites will use the bride show for subsequent marriages. Um, the Byzantines would never do that because uh, in the Orthodox Church, you kind of get, really, you're only supposed to marry one time. You get one bite of the apple. They will allow you to marry more than one time. But that's always a sort of condescension to human, uh, you know, carnal needs. Mm-hmm. And for the sake of the salvation of the soul of the person who's remarrying, they really don't like it. They frown on it. And, uh, and so the Byzantines would, would, would never put so public and gaudy a display on a subsequent marriage because of the implicit uh, penitential nature mm-hmm. of, of second marriages. Another way... Uh, the Muscovites, Muscovites changed uh, the, the bride show was they uh, applied it to more than just the ruler. Uh, in Byzantium, only the, the, the Basilios, the emperor, would use a bride show. Uh, in Muscovy, we have uh, cousins and younger brothers, plus, of course, the Tsar, Grand Prince himself, um, sons and younger sons, all using the bride show. It becomes the way anybody who's a male dynasty, the male member of the dynasty, gets married. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about the parts of the bride show as the Muscovites reconstructed it? Yeah, that's really interesting, too. Here, I think what what's interesting about this um, is how differently it's reported over time and differently how it's reported between uh, foreigners' accounts and official Muscovite documents. Um, were you to look at official Muscovite documents and even some borders accounts, you would leave uh, that experience, that sort of interface with these documents, thinking that this was an absolutely open contest. Any woman who is healthy, of the right age, um, beautiful, of course, uh, was eligible to be in the lineup of beauties that would be presented to the Tsar. There are, however, documents that these bride shows generated. And these documents show something very different. They show that the people who were invited to participate were uh, not actually from the most important families, the, son, the daughters of princes and boyars, Boyars being the highest-ranking nobleman in Needle, Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and they weren't the daughters of peasants or priests either. They were a middle layer, a very narrow layer of usually provincial uh, gentry. 
they were the lowest rungs of the aristocracy. So they weren't poor. They weren't the daughters of priests, nor were they at the very top. They were in this middle layer. Now, these documents that tell us that, the, that have an addressee, are really important because they help us reconstruct how the bride show was put together, how, how, it, was, uh, how, it, was, how it simply was done. We know that uh, emissaries, once a decision was made for the Tsar to marry, emissaries were sent out to, the, to regional towns with the instructions to send around a circular, an edict, nominally in the name of the Grand Prince or Tsar, saying, two fathers of daughters in that little, narrow, middle layer, right, of gentrymen, to bring their daughters to that regional town for inspection. Um, they would do that. They would be described. A list would be compiled, physically described. And then the ones deemed uh, sort of the best potential candidates would be moved on to Moscow, where there would be yet another inspection of candidates, this time done by boyars and their wives, along with probably some foreign doctors who would look at the lists and interview the candidates and even do, frankly, some, you know, uh, physical examinations uh, to assure virginity and to however they measured uh, fertility in a very folksy way um, for those candidates. And then the number would be reduced even further. The Tsar would enter the picture only at the very end. He would uh, see only those candidates who were already been, who had already been looked at at least twice before, once in the regional towns, once right there in Moscow. And then he would see a handful of, uh, of finalists and then make, make his pick. Now, what's the interesting thing about this, Marshall, and the thing that I think is most important that I'm saying here in this book, is that the descriptions that were produced of the candidates included, as you would expect, a, a physical description of them and a medical history, both of the, of the, of the girl, young girl herself, but also of her parents, interestingly. But the largest component of these descriptions, the largest number of words put in these descriptions, were actual genealogies of these women. Now here I mean not, you know, this is the daughter of so-and-so who is the son of so-and-so who is the son of so-and-so. It's not a patrilineal line of descent. They actually didn't care what, uh, the, about the illustriousness of the, of the, the bride's family. Actually, they, they only cared in as much as they didn't want an illustrious uh, woman. What they were looking for in these genealogies, very different from the official genealogies that the court composed of, of the great families and that were held in, in, in Moscow, in the, in the chancellors of Moscow. These notes, these uh, little slips of paper, literally, that describe the candidates were uh, genealogies of the, the, the bridal candidates' parents, siblings and the siblings' wives or husbands, and any god, uh, godparents or any uh, in-laws or step-parents. It was a horizontal genealogy. And I, and I believe what we have there is what they were looking for was who were the families that were related to this woman. Mm -hmm. So that if she became the, the, consort of the consort of the Grand Prince or the Tsar, who would be coming to Moscow on her coattails? That's what we need to know. If the Tsar picks this woman, what does that mean for the rest of us? And I think this is really important because, first of all, it's one of the things that's completely unnoticed in all those passing references to uh, bride shows that you encounter in all the other histories that, that, that talk about this, very briefly as it is. But the other thing is that I think this has an actually direct uh, impl implications on the nature of power, monarchical power. In Moscovy. And this is a major point that I'm trying to drive home in the book. And it's something, by the way, that I picked up from Keenan, as, as you probably remember. That is that the Tsar will waltz in at the end, and he'll, I believe he actually gets a free pick. I think he actually does pick who he wants. We know that because sometimes he picks people that the boyars 
don't like, and they wind up poisoning her, and we can talk about that. There's a number of interesting scandals where boyars will sit up and, and say, no, 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 we can't have this. Someone slip or something, and, and we're going to get rid of this woman, and they do. But we know this even uh, from looking at the documents, because we know who handled the initial screenings out in the provinces. We know who handled the screenings in Moscow, the second tier of inspections of these candidates. We know it was the boyars and their wives, and the Tsar really has very little uh, say in this. And the very fact that um, they're interested in the, the woman's cognatic, which is to say by marriage, uh, relatives, the kind of information that you won't get if you look up the family and the official genealogies that they keep in Moscow. This is supplemental information. Because, it, by the way, in those formal genealogies that they keep in Moscow, um, it's a, an entirely patrilineal list. So you don't get spouses. You don't get women at all. You don't get daughters. Mm-hmm. But in these investigations surrounding the bride show, you do. And I think that's because they want to know who's coming in. And who wants to know who's coming in? The people that are already there. Who wants to know who the next boyars are going to be? The boyars are already there. Because everyone knows that when the Tsar picks a bride, that bride's father and uncles and brothers are instantly going to become important. Eventually, they're going to be promoted to boyar rank themselves. And they're certainly going to marry... Uh, enter the marriage market and become very, very desirable marriage partners for the other Boyar families. So it's very important to know who comes on the on the bride show, uh, excuse me, on the coattails of a bride uh, before the bride show actually happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that that is more or less the politics of the selection. They are interested in finding somebody who uh, will either. Um, be favorable to uh, their own side, so to say, or who will not injure them. Right. Yeah. Neutrality is a really good factor. And this is one of the tough things. A foreign bride was a great idea. Yeah. Uh, marrying someone from abroad was a super idea. Why? Because she came with absolutely no domestic entanglements. Right. She was a foreigner. Yeah. She didn't come with her brothers. She didn't come right. with her father. They had to stay in their own kingdoms very far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so marrying a foreigner was uh, was the best of all worlds. On the other hand, marrying a foreigner was was, was expensive. It had the religious entanglement problems. You had to get them to convert. Uh, you had to negotiate these uh, these unions, which often had diplomatic implications. And sometimes you wanted to have a free hand so you can change sides in a war, uh, which became very complicated if you know your the Tsar's bride was from the side he wanted to sort of uh, jettison. Uh, Foreign matches were best, but they were too complicated. Bride shows, I think, make uh, a, a kind of fictive foreigner. Mm-hmm. Uh, these brides coming from the provinces, from this very narrow layer of gentry out in the, in, in, in the, in the provinces, were essentially foreigners because they came, even though they did come with uh, uncles and brothers, they were not necessarily linked to the boyars who were already there. So, so long as the boyars were willing to integrate them, and they were, it was a, it was a really best of all worlds scenario because it, it brought new blood in, uh, which helped genetic pool. Uh, it kept the balance of forces that were already there. It provided the Tsar with a spouse that could produce a healthy new generation of uh, uh, in the dynasty, genetically healthy. Uh, it, there was no downside to it. But what I really want to get back to is this whole question of narco power. <clears throat> because the exciting thing, I think, about understanding the the sequence of, of stages in a bride show and how that sequence reveals who was involved is that I ultimately think that the bride show is perhaps the best direct evidence we have yet of something that – of an idea that others have made uh, basically by inference – and with with less solid evidence, I think they're right, but I think that this is the better evidence for what their argument argument is. And that argument is that Muscovy was, as many pre-modern societies were, um, a, a collaborative, uh, a, a condominium sort of so to speak, of power between the ruler and his boyars. Now, you and I both know that the man I worked with, Ned Keenan, would, would 
use the word oligarchy. And I am actually deliberately sort of running away from that word because the word suggests that the the Tsar uh, is either a member of the oligarchy, and and I think that that diminishes his his status in the system too much. Or it means that the Tsar is irrelevant to the political system because everything is run by the oligarchs, which is the, the most inner, innermost circle of power at court. I don't think either of those views are right. I think that the Tsar actually is important. I think the political culture vaults him up too high. You know, the Tsar is, you know, the anointed of God in this sort of, you know, Christ, uh, Christian theology uh, sort of way. You can't sort of get away from that. The, the sources are say what they say, and I think we. We can have some problems and doubts about that uh, all we want, but they do say what they say. On the other hand, I do think he rules with his boyars. I do think that there are cultural reasons. There are cultural elements in the political system to create a notion of good rulership. And that good rulership is limited and measured and collaborative. This is important because, as you know very well, uh, the received historiography on early modern Russia creates the um, the image that the Tsar was, uh, you know, all powerful. All the people were were his slaves and his chattel. Um, that the the word of the Tsar was law. Uh, there was no unofficial or certainly no official limitation of monarchical power. The Tsar's will was truly autocratic. It was one of his titles, in fact. Um, and I'm pushing against that. Mm-hmm. I'm not pushing against that in the same way that some of my colleagues, whom I respect and like a lot and uh, have taught us a lot about monarchical power and the court uh, before this book. I don't think we can talk about just boyars when we're talking about Muscovite political culture. Mm-hmm. I think we have to talk about the dynasty. I think we have to talk about the Tsar. But we can't forget the boyars either. I think uh, we have to sort of understand this is a very complicated, uh, although very natural, um, uh, combination of, 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 uh, of leaders who were linked to each other by blood and marriage. I mean, the boyars have come to be, over several generations, the in-laws of the Tsar. We know this, of course, the example of this is how the Romanovs come to the throne in 1613 precisely because of the in-laws of the Tsar. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're terrible. Well, yeah, actually, I'm glad you mentioned him. Let's, let's talk about a concrete in- instance of, um, of bride shows and somebody who maybe didn't play by the rules. You can tell us about that. And that is, in fact, Ivan the Terrible. He, was, um, he, was, uh, he practiced serial monogamy. So <laughs> That's right. That, yeah, like like an American. So um, maybe you could talk a little <laughs> bit. Maybe you could talk a little bit about him. And of course, the question is, how many wives did he have? Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? To, to at this day and age, to be wondering about that question. It is. Uh, it, it's a, such a basic question. How many times did the guy marry? Uh, and frankly, it's not something. It's something that basically has, like bride shows itself. It's a question that uh, you bounce, you bump into when you look at biographies or historical treatments of Ivan's reign, um, and no one directly, discreetly takes up. So I do in this book. Um, there are, you will encounter anywhere from Ivan married five times to Ivan married eight times, um, and there's a list of names you can sort of go through it. Um, I. I made it one of the goals of this book to see if I could sort that out. And uh, and I think I have, actually. I, I guess I really want to go out on a limb and say I really do think I've been married seven times. I'm on the edge yeah. of my chair, Russ. I really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, more than the number uh, of uh, wives, and there, is their identity and the dates of the marriages and the ends of the marriages or deaths of these brides, these things are all enormously um, uh, unresolved questions. And uh, I take them up and turn in the book and attempt to figure out when he married each bride or when he might have married, what was the window uh, of dates when uh, Tsar Tsar, uh, could have married um, uh, this particular bride or that. Um, A lot of the problem is is that much of of the, uh, the writings on Ivan's domestic life are based on a forgery. 
Uh, it's a, a very well-known uh, little snippet of text. Um, never been published. I, well, I published it in the book for the first time. Um, uh, called from uh, an extract from the chronicle or chronograph of the marriages of Ivan the Terrible. It's a document that doesn't exist. So the, the actual chronicle doesn't exist. We've never found such a document. And this purports to be a extract from it, right? And uh, everyone cites it. Not everyone, but a lot of people cite this thing and believe it. And even those people who raise doubts about its authenticity nonetheless use it. Uh, but we know that the document was uh, is, is inscribed in a manuscript that was owned by a very famous 19th century Russian forger. The handwriting is his. We have lots of reasons to 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 doubt this text. And even when you look at it, you compare with what we do know, what must be true about when and whom Ivan married, we know that this document makes lots of mistakes. Um, so there's a reason for the confusion. Nobody has systematized all the documents about Ivan's wives and sort of figured out which one works. But one of the interesting things, though, that, uh, you know, uh, about the, the, the book that I, in Ivan's wives, that it might be new is I found, admittedly, a late uh, document, an early 17th century document, that gives us the identity of Ivan's um, sixth wife. Now, we know her as um, Vasilisa Malentieva, but, but we know even there there's a problem, because we know that she was married previously, and by the way, she's the only Russian Tsaritsa who was ever previously married. She was married previously to a man named Malenti. Melenti Ivanov, we later discover his name is Ivanov, but Melenti is his first name. And so her last name is, is rendered as Melentiev, Melentieva. Well, we know that this can't be right. It's, what this is is, is is a contraction of the way Russians described their wives, which was Vasilisa, the wife of Melenti. So the wife of Melenti, the wife of those words are just taken out. And Melenti is made into her surname. It's not. It's the first name of her husband, first husband. And it's all wrong. And nobody really talks about that. Secondly, uh, I did find a document that actually lists her and her last name. It happens to be Aredilova. And that family exists. That family's perfectly well-known. Uh, it's not prominent, but neither were any of the other families of any of the other brides of Russian czars in the 16th century and 17th century very prominent either. Um, it fits. She's probably uh, Radilova, at least throw that out there. You know, the last thing about this, and this is kind of the most egregious thing about the literature on Ivan's wives, again relating to Vasilisa, Melenkeva, or, or Radilova, if you like, um, is whether or not he actually married her or not. When you go and look in the books about her, these passing references and biographies and treatments about Ivan and his reign, you'll see passing references to her and how um, Ivan actually didn't marry her. Ivan got a blessing from the church sort of to cohabitate with her. Sometimes it's called a civil marriage. Well, I don't know where this is coming from, but there's no such thing as a <laughs> priest going, say, go ahead and shack up with this, with this woman. It's fine by me. That's that fishy. category just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist today, I don't think. Um, not in the Orthodox Church, at least. Uh, and certainly there's no civil marriage. There's no idea that the state can yeah. give you a marriage and not the church be there. Category doesn't exist. Um, and I have an answer for that in the book very briefly. It's that they were uh, married. The reason why the terminology referring to the marriage is different from the terminology referring to all of Ivan's other marriages, as other six marriages, I didn't say, is because she had been previously married, and so had Ivan. So the traditional way of saying someone gets married in, in Russian in this period was to crown them, because anyone who's seen Deer Hunter knows that you get a crown over your head when you get, when you get married in the Orthodox Church. That only happens for first marriages. If you've been previously marriage, married, you don't get a crown over your head. Uh, the, the rubrics for the service, for the wedding service, for subsequent weddings, when both partners, uh, you know, the, the groom and the bride, have been previously married, is not to crown them. And so you have to use a different euphemism, and they do. But this has been misinterpreted, I think, by historians who bump into this and say, oh, well, he, he got a blessing <laughs> to be with this, with this chick, and that's just not... 
it's almost it's almost um it's almost embarrassingly funny to to read these things. Like, um, how do I get one of those? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be bizarre to quote Mel Brooks. Yeah. Russ? Yeah. Are you still there? Okay, good. Sorry. Sorry, I'm sorry. I just paused yeah. there. Um, so here, let me write that down so I can get that out. Actually, I'll see it. So um, uh, let's go on. Uh, the, the, one of the things I found interesting about these um, bride shows or the results thereof is that actually being married to the czar, it was kind of dangerous. That's right, or at least to be picked. <laughs> to be picked, yeah. To, to be picked. Once you got married, uh, it could be dangerous too. Um, Ivan's third wife, um, Marfa uh, Sabakina, was probably – poisoned and died three weeks after the wedding. Um, but yeah, the 17th century particularly with the new dynasty, the Romanovs, it was um, it was dangerous business to be picked to be the Tsar's consort. Uh, the very famous example, actually all the first three Romanov Tsars have brides, their first picks sort of uh, interfered with by boyars around them. The very famous example of it, though, is the very first Romanov czar, Michael Romanov, who comes to the throne in 1613, uh, and in 1616 uh, picks a woman out of a bride show. Her name was Maria Khlopova. And um, she is brought into the, into the Kremlin. She moves into the uh, Tsaritsa's apartments, which were called the Terem, this isolated section of the palace complex that women lived in. Uh, and she's at a banquet. Someone slips a, 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 an emetic into her, and she begins to fall into fits of vomiting, diarrhea, and convulsions. And uh, right away, of course, you know, she's 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 done for. Uh, she is sent away. Uh, the Tsar will eventually marry somebody else after a lot of failed attempts here and there. Um, and uh, it turns out years later that there was a conspiracy and. The uh, Tsar's mother, who didn't approve of the match, uh, arranged with some of her relatives to have her poisoned. Um, this is actually a very good example of what I mean by marriage politics and what I mean by the role of uh, of the boyars in the bride show and about collaborative collaborative monarchy, monarchical power, limited monarchical power in, in Muscovy. Only a boyar who... Uh, understands that he could have something to gain by taking this fantastic risk of poisoning the Tsar's bride would ever choose to do this. Only someone who understood um, that um, his or her position in the court was determined by marriage, his own, his ancestors' marriages, and by the Tsar's current marriage would attempt to... uh, to to uh, ruin the Tsar's choice of a bride because they would perceive they could perceive it as a as a danger to their own position. Let's put it this way: a boyar sitting in Moscow, when uh, looking at the, the the bride show, is shaking in his in his chair. Mm-hmm. It's the most it's the scariest moment in his so to speak professional life, because depending on who the Tsar picks. He's either going to continue occupying that chair in the middle of the Kremlin, or he's going to be out in Pula looking at, you know, wooden fortifications (laughs) and hating it, right? Uh, So every generation when the Tsar married, in in Ivan's case, much more frequently than that, um, boyars shuddered at the thought of the Tsar marrying. It could be a fabulous opportunity for them to even further their careers and advance their proximity to to the throne by um, marrying a son or daughter of their own or a, a sister to, you know, a, a sibling of the new Tsaritsa. And this would happen. After the Tsar would announce his pick, all the boyars would run off. We have documents that show this. These boyars would run off and, and begin calculating you know, who they could marry into the new in-laws' families, royal in-laws' families. Um, this is also, by the way, I don't talk much about this in the book, but it's it, because it's sort of an, an impression I have, not really something that one can show. But uh, brides come from families with lots of siblings and cousins. They don't come from families that don't have a lot of uh, available marriage mates out there inside their family. And the reason I think for that is that the... Um, uh, 
when they come, they, they sort of can open the doors, the marriage doors, and, and start marrying into the boyar families of those who are already there. Um, I can't prove that because I don't know how big the families of everybody else was, so there's no way to make a comparison. But one thing is for sure, that the fact that these bridal families were, were large was fully taken, taken advantage of. But to get back to the, the, the question of scandals, again, I think this is about monarchical power uh, in that uh, in one famous example, um, Tsar Alexei Mikhailovich, the second Romanov Tsar, um, wants to marry someone. Um, uh, his tutor and the senior boyar at court arranges to have her hair so tightly braided that she passes out. Um, immediately she's sent away because it, she's concealing, obviously, an, an, an illness. And then he maneuvers to have the Tsar marry instead a woman who comes from a family that is very close to this boyar, um, and the Tsar does marry her, and then this very important boyar marries that woman's sister. Mm-hmm. So the boyar becomes the brother-in-law of the Tsar. That's, that's sort of the gold standard. That, that, that happens once or twice, and only once or twice, because it's so rare to find uh, two, two, two sisters that um, were available and are of the right age and so on. But uh, that was sort of the goal. The boyar, his name was Boris Morozov, uh, was uh, was playing the game of court politics at, at a very high level. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. So, tell us how it all ends. They try this experiment. It begins in the beginning of the, I guess, 16th century, and then about 200 years later, it's disbanded. Why is it disbanded, and how? Yeah. The really, um, I think, a really important question is how it ends. Uh, about how it begins. How it begins can be explained, it's intuitive, but how it ends is a much more interesting question in a way. Uh, because why should it end? Um, it's a pretty um, useful uh, part of the political culture. It's working. Mm-hmm. That's why they keep it for two centuries. Why abandon it? You might say uh, that the reason why it's abandoned is, is because Peter the Great comes along and he's throwing out everything that's Muscovite and old-fashioned. And why not throw out the bride show too? Well, he does. But not before he actually has one himself. His very first marriage is, <laughs> is a bride show. But um, he, uh, he comes to the throne, as we know, at a time when the underlying court culture is already experiencing an awful lot of transformation. We give a lot more credit, we give perhaps too much credit to Peter the Great for some of the transitions that were already underway anyhow. Um, but having said that, Peter the Great does um, consciously think about the bride show. He does so indirectly, but very consciously. He, he thinks about it because what he wants to do is to integrate um, dynastic marriage back into Russia's diplomacy, Russia's foreign policy. Now, for the two centuries of the Bride Show, Russia isn't really using the marriages of its, the members of its, uh, of its dynasty, with one or two exceptions, for diplomatic re- purposes, as everyone else in Europe is. They're trading daughters and sons like mad in the West. The Habsburgs are perhaps the best example, but not the only one. Uh, the Muscovites are actually abjuring that, uh, that, that opportunity because of religion, because of costs, because of internal domestic politics. They're, they're just sort of saying no to that. But Peter wants to uh, establish more active dynastic partnerships or, or diplomatic partnerships with states, even small states, in Western Europe as he fights the Swedes and as he's thinking about the Turks and as he's just trying to integrate Russia more generally into the European balance of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so marriage is the best way to do that. And so Peter will come along and say, well, I have lots of nieces, I have a couple daughters, and I'm going to marry them off. I have a son. I'm going to marry them all off uh, to foreigners. And he, with one or two exceptions again, uh, does that. And in order to do that, you you have to sort of set aside the bride show. This even for his son, Alexei Petrovich, uh, the Tsarevich, who uh, marries um, a foreigner. And he, he doesn't even marry her in Russia. He goes off in uh, northern Germany and marries her there. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter is interested in doing something that 
Ivan III, who was the Tsar back in 1505, when the Bradshaw began, was unwilling to do. Ivan III was unwilling to bend the rules of the liturgical rules, the canonical rules of the Orthodox Church in order to facilitate Russia's participation in the European marriage market. Peter was. Mm -hmm. So we have fabulous examples of Peter arranging for the marriage of some very reluctant German prince to one of his (laughs) nieces. And he doesn't want to put a crown on. He doesn't want to walk around um, some altar table in the middle of the church. He doesn't want to do this Orthodox. He's certainly not going to convert. Mm -hmm. And Peter says... It's fine. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. I think he has trouble actually finding a priest who's willing to marry them uh, under those sort of altered uh, you know, wedding rubrics, nuptial rubrics. He eventually does. But uh, Peter is, is interested in uh, making Russia fit into the Western model. He understands the best way to do that is to integrate his family into the Western European broader royal, extended royal family. And in order to do that, he has to confront religion. Religion is going to be the big stumbling block for him. Mm-hmm. And, and he does it by modifying some of the, the ritual elements of, of marriage. He also does it by allowing, for example, uh, his grandchildren that would come from some of these marriages that he's arranged to be raised Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Now, not the sons um, of, uh, of his son, uh, but... If he had, uh, if his niece married a Protestant um, uh, prince, the niece had to remain Orthodox. But he permits all of the children to be to be Lutheran if if that's what it takes to get the marriage accomplished. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Ivan III would never have comp- contemplated. Mm-hmm. Right? How does he uh, How does he convince the boyars that this is a good idea if they're all ruling by consensus? Well, by then, uh, and I, I guess I would say. <laughs> Uh, referring to a pretty important article you once wrote uh, oh. a few years back. <laughs> Sorry to do that, but yeah. Uh, yeah but by then, uh, with the expansion, uh, the inflation of honors, that's a rather crummy term, but you're the you're one, you're one who sort of showed it numerically. The expansion of honors really had so expanded the ranks of the boyars that really had become diluted. Mm-hmm. Remember, things are changing over these two centuries. And the underlying political culture is changing too. Peter inherits a very different political culture than, say, Michael Romanov inherited when he's elected Tsar in 1613. Very different political culture from when Ivan III is Tsar in 1505. So already the boyars are not playing that role. Peter's coming onto the scene precisely when there needs to be a refashioning of the political culture. He gets that started. Many people think he actually accomplished that. He doesn't. The whole 18th century is transitional. You don't really get that until Paul the First comes along, really, um, and begins writing down some laws that uh, that will affect marriage and dynastic succession. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I was going to say, so so uh, again, we're about to run out of time, but I really want to get to this. The because um, I think the listeners will find it really interesting. So the the, the deal is done. Peter uh, puts the kibosh on these um, these uh, bridal selections. But then they have a kind of second life in Russian culture, and they get in things like opera. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, they do. Just like in Byzantium, when the bride show, where the bride show ends as a sort of historical reality at court and migrates into literature uh, and into folklore, so too in, in Russia, the bride show uh, goes away as a historical reality and really is forgotten about through through the 18th century but in the 19th century it comes to be remembered by by artists by playwrights by historical novelists and you find um uh, important painters historical painters like Sidolf and some others uh taking this as a subject for their work um you find this in uh Rimsky Korsakov's uh Saska Nevesta which is a bride for the czar the title of the book uh, a very important play um and the soviets produced that play a, a televised version of the play was very well received um yeah the bride show becomes a part again of the uh of the culture of the literary culture even after this interval of a century, the 18th century, when it's kind of forgotten, uh, probably because it was such a, a 
sort of characteristic feature of the past, a past from which the, the court was pretty deliberately running away, you know. So, But once you get the, the romantic period, the romantic writers and of the 19th century, and they're sort of looking around for something that's uh, natively Russian, something that is a distinctive feature of Russian culture, they, they discovered the bride show again as something that, you know, to their mind, nobody else really had. Mm-hmm. And so Russia is sort of special and unique this way. I was actually thinking while you were talking about how best to make plain exactly the way these bride shows functioned in Muscovy. And the only thing that I can come up with, because I've recently been through it, it's a little bit like picking an academic dean, you know, because <laughs> we just got a new dean of uh, arts and sciences. And of course, the dean is going to work very closely with, but not be married to, the provost. But all of the departments and department heads and other little deanlets have their finger in the pie. So uh, there's a lot of uh, dean showings. I think you might say. That's right. I, there are so many dean showings that they become kind of tiresome. I'd only add to that that <laughs> picking a dean is far more complicated than picking a bride for the czar. You think so? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. Right, because We're about to do that right here. So yeah, right now. No, it's a, it's a to- anybody who's not on the inside of it would never understand it. No. And I, I, and I wasn't on the inside of this, and I don't understand how we got the person we got, who I'm sure will be just fine. But it's just completely <laughs> opaque to me how, the, how this candidate, among all the great candidates, like came to the fore. But I know that there were so many fingers in that pie that, you know, it's not really edible anymore, I guess, to continue that <laughs> metaphor. Um, anyway, uh, Russ, it's really been great to talk to you. I want to close the interview by asking our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? What's your next or current project? Yeah, well, um, I'm doing two things simultaneously right now. When I get bored with one, I write a few pages uh, of the other. Uh, one is an expansion of the two chapters I have in this book on Ivan and his wives. We talked about that earlier, and I think that uh, it is so important. It is so central to the historiography. And I think, frankly, it's something people want to read about, yeah. the same way they want to read about Henry VIII's six wives. Yeah. I've invested them by one. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think I want to write this up as a, as a sort of separate book mm-hmm. and bring into it a little bit more about the role and lives and position status of royal women at uh, in, in in the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing I'm doing. The second thing I'm doing is uh, totally fun. I'm looking at succession in the in a Romanov dynasty from 1613 to today. Um, the wow. election of yeah yeah to today uh, in 1613 the Romanovs come to the throne in an election that still hasn't the, the, the reasons for which still have not been explained very well by historians there's lots of different explanations I think I have one based on this kind of kinship politics marriage politics sort of way of looking at political culture um, and then you get Peter the Great who writes a law Paul the First who writes a law and then the revolution comes and they throw everybody out. But in fact, there are Romanovs still around today. Uh, one of the things I do is um, I'm, uh, I translate a lot of documents for the woman who would be empress today if there was one. Her name is Maria Vladimirovna. She lives in Madrid. And uh, a lot of the discussion about Romanovs since 1917, the descendants of the Romanovs, um, it is about the law of succession that Paul I wrote in 1797. Anybody who reads the epilogue of this book will sort of see that's a launching pad for the next one about that law. So I'm really interested in sort of how, you know, law and succession and family and dynasty all fit together into um, the political culture in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and frankly, even the 20th centuries. Mm-hmm. So I'm really kind of going out of field. It's kind of fun to do this mm-hmm. as a medievalist by training to look at how you know, people write, my colleagues write the history of the 19th century. is kind of strange. Um, they, they do it differently than we do, and yeah. it's kind of fun to see that. Yeah, but yeah. that's where I'm going. So just a quick question. The Spanish woman, um, she would be the grand prince. What was her title? Is she grand yeah. princess? Is that what she is? Yeah, her title in Russian is Velika Knyaginya, which you, in our period of Russian history, would be translated as Grand Princess. But uh, after the law of 1797, it's conventional to translate that as Grand Duchess. So oh, Grand Duchess okay. Mary of Lydia, yeah. I see. Okay, yeah. okay. And is she planning a quick return to the throne? I mean, does she? have you talked to her? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I. Yeah. Uh, no. She's not set to come back or anything? 
she would have invited by plebiscite, but mm-hmm. she is pretty clear that, uh, you know, she lives in Madrid and she has taken her school from Juan Carlos, who's mm-hmm. in many ways the most successful modern monarch. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a respect for uh, the traditions of her family, but also the, 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 the realities of democracy today. She sees herself primarily as the custodian of the Romanov dynastic tradition and also as a kind of advocate for uh, charity, tradition, religious culture, and uh, sort of Russian uh, well-being. Mm-hmm. So she, she's active very much in cultural and charitable activities these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is aware that the law that Paul I wrote in 1797 makes her the head of the family. Mm-hmm. And there comes a certain, you know, uh-oh, what if this happens kind of thing. Um, she would have to step in. She she said she would, but she is not mm-hmm. in any way that I've ever noticed um, politicking for that. Mm-hmm. She's, she's she's happy to to help in any way that circumstances require. Mm-hmm. I have to ask: uh, Is she married? She was. Oh, she was. Well, she, then she could go back and she could have a husband show. <laughs> you didn't think about that, did you? Oh, yeah, there are no such. Show. The Chinese had them. The Chinese <laughs> did have bridegroom shows, but no one else has ever had them that I know. Of. <laughs> well, Russ, it's really, it's really, really been great to, to talk to you and talking to Russ Martin about his book, A Bride for the Tsar: Bride Shows and Marriage Politics in Early Modern Russia. Uh, Russ, thanks so much for being on the show today. It was totally fun. Thank you, Mark. Right, bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Russ Martin about his new book, A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows and Marriage Politics in Early Modern Russia. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.